Hey, it's David, and you're listening to the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. Hope everyone had a great summer. Really happy to get things rolling again. Just moved to Glasgow, Scotland, which is fantastic for the show, as I'm going to be able to interview and meet some really amazing European guitarists. Speaking of which, I've got Steve Goss on the show. Beautiful composer uh, from Wales originally. He's based in the London area now. And I've been playing his compositions for three years now, so it was a real treat for me to not only get to meet him, uh, but to feature him for an episode on this show. He has quite the resume uh, writing works ever commissioned from various artists, uh, from Zorn to Kitsch, David Russell, Agnello Desiderio. You'll hear him talk about these projects, which are very exciting to say the least. If you find this interview interesting, I wanted to mention that Steve does have two lessons on composition online at Tonebase and recently has shot a very neat video analyzing Britain's Nocturne for the solo guitar. And this video was actually filmed at Britain's house at the desk with the manuscripts when he composed this piece, which would be quite the lesson. I do have a promo code. If you're not a member already, this gives you $15 off of your next subscription. It is podcast-3, all uppercase and one word, podcast-3. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this or not, but I decided why not. I'm going to play a recording of mine for a change. Uh, this was from a live performance. I was playing with um, a great friend of mine, cellist Annie Jacobs Perkins. This is the first movement from a very neat suite called Park of Idols. And you'll hear Steve talk about it later in the interview. But this movement is inspired by Frank Zappa and is titled Jump Start. <laughs> did you get started with composition was this something that was always with you or did you kind of discover it later after no uh, i mean it was something that was always with me you know the first instrument i learned was was guitar actually when at the age of uh, eight went for guitar lessons you know the first week the guy showed me a couple of notes Mm -hmm. gave me some exercises to do uh and i assumed that the whole point was that i'd go home and then make my own exercises make my own things up uh so i went back and said look 
yeah, that's what you gave me and this is what I've done. I think he was a bit bemused by that, but (laughs) that's how it went. So I just thought that's what you did. I just thought that, you know, that was the whole music thing is that, you know, they give you some stuff and you think, okay, you've put the ball over the net. Now I'll give you some stuff back. Oh, that's interesting. Because most uh, composers I've met, you know, they got started a little bit later, you know, Mm. after going through more of a performance route. Yeah. What, What I really love about your style of composition, I mean, you've got a very unique voice, but you're also not af- afraid to uh, bring in quotes and mm. inspirations from just totally different styles of music yeah, outside absolutely. of classical. Uh, I mean, the first piece I worked on was Park of Idols. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, <laughs> you wrote it, but <laughs> for people who don't know out there, it's uh, cello and guitar and each movement's inspired uh, by a specific musician. And That's the right, first yeah. movement starts with Pat Metheny and then you go to Shostakovich or, mm. or sorry, Frank Zappa first. Frank Zappa first. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what's it like to harness that, that, uh, style of music and still incorporate it into a classical sense? Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is a big question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, always been interested in composers who make, use quotes, refer to other composers, you know, and I think, uh, one of my biggest influences was my PhD supervisor, Peter Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And he was very much involved in the whole uh, American uh, Charles Ives thing. Okay. Uh, you know, making music up from other music and this whole idea of sort of meta music and also the incorporation of popular music styles into contemporary classical music. Yeah. So it kind of goes back a long way. But also I think it's just from, uh, and I have an incredibly wide uh, taste for music. I mean, I couldn't couldn't bear to sit down and just write modernist concert music the whole day long. Yeah, I yeah. Have too many, you know, too many interests, too many different things. So uh, often I see a project as a chance to really sort of explore another new style of music. Yeah. Well, what is the Steve Goss uh, Spotify playlist? Like? Yeah, yeah. Um, all kinds of things. I mean, at the moment, well, I've got, I'm writing a solo guitar piece next, uh, which is it's going to be called Joni. It's based on some Joni Mitchell. Licks. Oh, okay. Um, after that, I'm doing a solo guitar piece for Agnello Desiderio, which is based on Italian opera to a large extent. Uh, after that, there's a piece for the percussionist Evelyn Glenny. Um, and that will certainly have some kind of rock, jazz, groove vibe to it. Yeah. So it, that's going to be a solo piece for percussion? It's not, actually. It's a piece for marimba and theorbo. Oh, wow. Of all things. <laughs> yeah, so... How, how did uh, that that uh, combination come about? <laughs> I, I love it. Well, I've worked a lot with a, a theorbist called Matthew Wadsworth. I wrote a solo piece for him, uh, then a concerto. Um, and he was working at a, a sort of festival, and they were interested in having a piece for him and Evelyn to play together. And they both suggested I could I could come up with something. So that's that yeah. project. Yeah. And have you have you put the ensemble together yet? Oh or? no, the piece isn't isn't is just a sort of uh, a glint in my eye at the moment. You know, but for, I can imagine the instrumentation working well because yeah, remember it does have a soft uh, it timbre does, to it. It does. I mean, I've done a piece for percussion and guitar, and there's a lot of marimba and guitar in that, and that works really nicely. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to either have a guitar that has a really punchy sound or have a bit of amplification, but. 
As a combination, actually, I think percussion and guitar is one of the really great underexploited ones. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. It's it's a pain in the in the butt because you've got to bring all this gear with you. You know, great oh, big, yeah. you know, vibraphone, uh, marimba, various little sort of stands and bits and pieces. So it's uh, then the guitarist has to learn how to count for once. No, well, yes. <laughs> actually, in that in that piece of mind, the, the guitarist also has to play percussion. So, oh, really? Which instrument? Percussion. Uh, just a few little things, sort of gongs, a couple of drums, bongos. So. Yeah, but I wrote it for a guitarist, Craig Ogden, who who also studied percussion. So yeah, it kind of made it. Oh, wow! Yeah, I, I haven't heard that one. I have to check it out because uh, there's not many pieces for. No, and th- this mean, one I... is uh, is is actually based on the on the films of Terry Gilliam, of all pieces. So it's called uh, Dark Nights and Holy Fools. So that's another thing I wanted to bring up. You 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 have such inspiration for these different styles of music, but mm. you also have great inspiration from other forms of art from a film um cinema paradiso is that the name of the piece yeah wrote for zorin that's right yeah a beautiful piece i absolutely love that and Thank uh you. i mean cinema paradiso is my favorite movie so yeah, it's I was, a great movie <laughs> yeah. it's a great movie but you know the, there's no music from that movie no. in the piece well, but, but wasn't there like one little quote from the movie or well no? there's a couple of little i mean it's full of little naughty things that yeah. sort of put there to um to irritate and annoy or um yeah there is a little quote yeah Remind me the story of 451. I remember it was really interesting. I'm sure you get asked this every time. No, I'm sorry. Uh, well, it's amazing how much, uh, yeah, how much interest. Controversy. Is. For, well, no, no. Exactly. Controversy. <laughs> Although it's, you know, it's, it's the, uh, my poorer publishers, they had people phoning up the whole time complaining oh, about no. this. Oh, um, no. But it's, um, yeah, so the idea of 451. So the, the so Cinema Paradiso is a set of six pieces based on different films, different film directors and so on. And 451 is based on the Francois Truffaut film, Fahrenheit 451, which is based on the Ray Bradbury book. And in this book, basically 451 allegedly is the is the temperature. 451 degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature at which paper burns. Although Ray Bradbury, when I quizzed about this, said he just sort of heard it somewhere in a pub or something. So it may not be true. But what happens, it's a kind of dystopian future where reading is banned. And the fire and houses are fireproof and the fire brigade come round from house to house uh, burning books. Any books they find are burnt. Hmm. Um, so what happens is that people, in order to keep books going, they, they memorize them. Yeah. So they teach. So each person becomes a book. So they have to sort of put, the, you know, put the whole book to memory. Yeah. So the idea of writing a piece based on it, we wouldn't, I thought, wouldn't it be great if, uh, you know, you had to learn the piece from memory and have yeah, to be show, yeah. shown it from memory. So there's no music uh, for the for the score. The score is is burned. Um, Did Zora, you burn it? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't even have it on my computer. You uh, you burnt the computer as well. No, <laughs> yeah, burnt in in in, you yeah. know, in inverted commas. So there is no copy of it. Um, so Zoran memorized it. Uh, did you um, like give him a, a recording of it to learn off of? No, or? actually, well, I had I did give him the the pictures on paper. But so then you made him burn it. I made him burn it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, and so so the whole thing is is memorized, and people have to learn it. Um, someone who knows it has to teach it to them basically bit by bit or they just take it down off the record zoran's actually done a, a, a lesson for it on the tone base website it takes you through you know it's funny he was telling step. me about that and he was saying it was just such a hilarious day just with coincidences and yeah. then he asked what's the microphone you're using and yeah. it's a akg 451 microphone yeah. <laughs> so it was just <laughs> i mean it was, it was a joke that went on and on and you know we had uh even even the the page in the score 
uh, only has the numbers 451 on it. Um, you know, so it's, it's page 14.5 or whatever. And, and even the catalogue number for it is 1154. You know, it's it's just this insane kind of joke that just kept going, going and going and going. So. Oh, the- then a hundred years from now, people are going, what's all this about? <laughs> well, it, it's got to be amazing to have such great artists perform these works. Yeah, I mean, I from mean, Zorin to, I remember yeah. hearing David uh, Russell perform. Um, uh, Cantigas to something Yeah, like yeah. That was a really neat piece as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, what, uh, the thing I enjoy most is working with these people and learning so much from them. Because, you know, each each person I work with, they have something new, something I don't know about, yeah. something else to sort of show me. So it's it's been an incredible sort of learning curve for, for years and years and years, you know. Um, and also just, just working with the personalities. Uh, people often ask me about John Williams. And um, he's amazing to work with because he's so enthusiastic. Yeah. He's like a sort of, you know, 22-year-old, like a little puppy who's going around sort of saying, oh, huh. this project is great, let's do this. What do you think of this? And and there's there's none of these, these sort of airs and graces. It's all very uh, open and... Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Is it before you begin composing their piece or within the composing process you try to meet with these artists? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think of composing as a solitary activity yeah yeah um not a la takamitsu going to the <laughs> no well i mean um going to the mountains for two weeks no, or something like that it's it's very much sort of meeting with people talking with people yeah uh i think my main uh sort of aim really each time i write a piece is to try and make it as different as possible from the last one mm-hmm. um don't necessarily always succeed but it's it's a kind of aim uh, it's the opposite of trying to find your own style, you know. It's, it's a question of saying, right, I've just done that, and I'll do the exact opposite. And so with working with different people, that really helps me think about instruments differently, especially when I write a lot of guitar music. I mean, more than half my music has guitar in it. And so I wouldn't want it to all sound the same yeah, or yeah. sound similar. Um, so I try and bring in sort of aspects of different people's playing you yeah. know, each time. Um, so. I'm really interested to hear about uh, Agnello's piece. Yeah. Did he specifically ask for one to be inspired or kind of written off of Italian opera? Or was that your no, idea? No, it was... Um, I mean, it's right up his alley. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> it's well, going to be fantastic. He's been, he'd been nagging me to write a piece for a long time. And of course, you know, it's always a thing of, uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's... So we finally got the first performance in, in the book, got the commission arranged. I haven't started writing it yet. Um, it, the first performance is in March. We're now in the beginning of September. Um, but it will time. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of forming in my head. I mean, so often pieces almost form entirely before I sit down at any instrument or any, any piece of paper or any computer or anything, you know, the sort of sound world, the concepts. And I have a Spotify playlist for Agnello's piece of, of many, many Italian opera pieces. Yeah. Um, but when we first talked about the piece, he was like, you know, do whatever you want. I leave it entirely up to you. You do whatever you want. And I said, no, I can't work like that. I must, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it must be something we're both you know very committed to very into so i gave him a list i think of three or four potential projects yeah and uh, again he was very sort of coy and then he said well steve you know i love italian opera and so it's going to be that yeah so that's the so some kind of fantasy that involves lots of well-known uh sort of late late 19th century italian opera and where's the premiere going to be in moscow in the um Tchaikovsky Hall. Oh, okay, in yeah. Moscow, yeah, and oh. it, in March. And it's, um, the piece has got a title already. It's called Verismo. Okay. The Verismo style yeah. of opera. Um, so, yeah, that should oh, be that's, fun. That's but it'll, it'll be very Agnello in the same way that I think 
David Russell's piece is is very David. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you said Italian opera and on yellow, yeah. I just thought, that, that, that's <laughs> damn perfect. That's going to be great. Yeah. And we're in your studio right now, and I mean, I do see guitars. Yeah. But uh, I see a nice piano. Are you, when you compose, I mean, I, I know you just said you kind of formulate a lot of mm. um, melodies or harmonies in mm. your head. Do you compose at the piano quite a bit? Mm. Um, yes and no. I mean, I do almost everything um, actually away from this room. <laughs> you know, um, I think about pieces all the time so that they have characters and um, shapes and structures and uh, different kind of textures that are all in my mind. They're all very unfocused. Yeah. But but the piece kind of takes a shape, and I spend a lot of time just writing shapes on pieces of paper, numbers of movements, structures, balance between fast and slow, high and low, dense and empty, um, really tight rhythmically and, and spacious, thinking about those timings and those yeah. things. So a lot of this planning goes on so that by the time I actually start writing the notes out, um, the whole piece is kind of formed in my mind and then I'm just trying to actually just pin it. Pin oh, it down. okay. So it's just um, bringing it all out onto one yeah. sheet of paper. Yeah, and, huh. uh, and, that, and at that stage I do use piano. Uh, I use guitar a bit. Um, I don't use a guitar at all if I'm not writing for guitar. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. Uh, but when I am writing for guitar, it's handy to have it there, especially just to try things out. Yeah, what yeah. What I had to do recently was buy a, buy a smaller, lighter guitar because I was finding I'd just sort of pick it up, you know, something like that for hours, do something ridiculously stretchy for five then minutes, your hands then really... put it down. And I think, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, so the instruments are around, yeah. But uh, So I'm, is it like a little parlor guitar that you use now? Or is well, it's there... just a short scale. It's... Um, like a uh, six thirty or well, yeah, six two eight, and it's uh, narrow and it's light. So oh, that works out nice. Yeah, yeah, so it's very very nice. But it's uh, it's weird because I used to obviously used to play concerts and stopped um, four years ago. Um, did our last concert with my quartet at the Iserlohn Festival in Germany, and haven't played a concert since then, and haven't really practiced since then. Yeah, you what know. was it like walking off the stage for? Uh, it was, was it, fine. I mean, the, was it a bit bitter? Well, obviously, bittersweet in a sense. Or? Yes and no. I mean, uh, I was finding it, you know, as getting older, it becomes increasingly difficult to keep your playing up to the required level. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't be shit, basically. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> or then everyone you, you knows your name suck, when you're, yeah. You know, and so you have to put in a lot of work. And it's it's not fun. You know, it's like, like working out in the gym endlessly. Yeah. Um, and then you find that you do a concert and the playing is, yes, probably just about as good as it was last time, mm -hmm. but maybe half a percent not so good. And, of course, all the practicing time was taking me away from composing, you know. And, and I you had, wanted to focus. And I wanted to focus on that. And it was getting very frustrating not to have enough time to write. Um, but the funny thing is the more things you take out of your life, you still don't have enough time to write because you take on more pieces. And, yep. <laughs> and, and forever goes on. Um but it was, yeah, of course, I love playing. I just didn't like practicing. Yeah, yeah. You know. Were, were you mainly a chamber performer? Or were you yeah, doing solo? I mean, it was, it was uh, I started off doing solo stuff and a lot of contemporary music. Mm -hmm. So I played a lot of contemporary music ensembles. Then did a lot of concerts with my wife, who's a singer, uh, for oh, many okay. years. And then, then with my quartet, Tetra, we played 27 years, basically, on the road. Wow. Um, yeah, went, went all over the place, had a wonderful time. That's a good run. Yeah, it was fun. Do you well, play well, any of your compositions yeah, with them? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'm sure the the reason I got really started as a composer, sort of more broadly, was when people heard 
my groups play my pieces, yeah, so my yeah. songs, my quartets, and so on. And that's kind of how it started. It's people saying, "Oh, that's really. Can you write something for me?" Yeah, and so on. It's so, nice to know you got like really good performers to be able to play your piece. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's you know I don't think of myself. Uh, as a performer or a composer, but basically a musician. So a musician yeah. plays instruments and and produces music. And so this whole idea of transcription, arrangement, composition, it's all one thing. Yeah. Really. I don't um sometimes when I'm collaborating with people, I don't even like taking taking my name as, as the name on the composition. You know, sometimes hmm. they've they've put in just as much. I did a concerto once for whew, um piano, saxophone, cello, double bass and violin and orchestra <laughs> and the most of the ideas from the piece came from the from the pianist a pianist called graham kasky who i've worked with an awful lot and he just has brilliant ideas and fantastic concepts and the idea was to take well-known music and completely transform it yeah. so you know like do the slow movement of the rachmaninoff cello sonata like a kind of stomp 1920s stomp up tempo stomp and then do last movement of uh, beethoven piano sonata in the style of a piazzolla Tango, etc. Huh. So he'd have all these ideas and play them on the piano, and I would, you know, basically just curate the project. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought of that very much as his piece, but he wouldn't wouldn't go anywhere near the the authorial huh. moment. And in fact, I found the whole composer thing just having one name on the score a very strange thing. I never thought of it that way, but it, it, a lot of collaboration can go into, yeah, especially absolutely. the way you. Um, go about music it's too bad it's not always like that um yeah i mean sometimes it is sometimes, i mean different people collaborate to different levels i mean the concerto i wrote which john williams recorded mm-hmm. uh wasn't actually written for him it was written for a friend of mine called graham roberts okay and um collaborating with him was amazing because he had all these incredible ideas he'd sort mm-hmm. of describe the kind of thing that he wanted uh and we'd sit down and i'd you know i'd even give him things like um I'd say, well, I'm thinking of using these kinds of textures and these kind of chords. And I'd give him stuff to improvise on, and we'd meet up, and I'd just sit there saying, well, try this, try that, try the other, yeah. record it all, and then take away those recordings. I wouldn't necessarily write them down off the tape and use them in the piece, but they would provide an awful lot of the kind of raw material that the piece yeah. comes from. You know. So how did it go about with John Williams then recording the piece? Uh, well, it was funny. You know, that, that piece, it was just... it was it was. You know, wrote it, wrote it all down, wrote it uh-huh. all out. Um, Graham played it. You know, John Williams heard one of Graham's performances, liked the piece a lot, wanted to play it, huh. toured it, recorded it. Um, so he just played, you know, the written part. And sometimes it is a bit weird when other people play music I've written for a very specific guitarist. But actually, you know, sometimes it's the, the new person comes in and they do it in a different way that's just as interesting, just as good, yeah, just as fascinating. And uh, I kind of, I loathe this idea of, you know, the definitive performance or the right way of doing it mm-hmm. and imagining somehow just because a performer worked with a composer, that's the way you should do the piece. Yeah. You know, it's something that guitarists have always fallen into this trap. There's a big issue, I think, with all the Bream repertoire. You know, mm-hmm. Bream was an incredibly um, imaginative and fantastic performer, but brought so much of his world into each piece. Yeah. You know, and people have mistaken that, imagining that the piece has to be played that way. Yeah. It's, that was you know. his way of playing it. Exactly. It yeah. was amazing. I love it. But, totally. But it's not the only way to do it. But I mean, if you look at uh, Glenn Gould, he started and ended his career with the with the Bach. Yeah. It was totally plays, yeah. different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I do like players who play play things differently. Yeah, and uh, and and so mix things fresh. up a bit. Um, Paul Garbraith, we were talking about before we started recording, and um, 
you know, he's someone, I went to a concert of his once and he pl- he wanted to play the Prairie Fugue and Allegro twice in the concert in two completely different ways. Huh, really? Uh, yeah, that was in Same key? Uh, yeah, yeah, same same everything, but just uh, in terms of fingers wow. and keys, but just to do different tempi, different relationships, different ways of playing it. And it was totally... Yeah, totally different. Fresh, yeah. even though it, was, yeah, it wasn't right. in su- succession, or no, was it? it was two different parts. That, that would be... That, that would be... be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, it's like I've been in concerts where they're like, you know, I didn't prepare any encore material, but I'm going to play the first piece no, again, no. and then they play it exactly the same. No, and no, it's, no. You just want well, to go like, home. We were talking about John Williams just now. He's just recorded a Baroque album. It's called Vivaldi, etc. And on it is a recording of Prelli Fugue and Allegro. And he plays the prelude in a way that's totally different from how he hmm. played it well obviously 50 years ago when he yeah. recorded it you know tempo's moving all over the place um and there's some a lot more sort of rubato he even adds a bar at one point because he thinks it sounds good wow. so there's this kind of completely um sort of wonderful freedom about it you know that's that, crazy that's so removed from how he used to do it well it's great to hear that he's still playing and performing it sounds like enjoying himself because didn't if i remember correctly was it about seven years ago he Said he was going to retire from the... Yeah. And then I guess that didn't happen. <laughs> well, it sort of did. I mean, he, he said he was going to retire from playing solo concerts and from touring overseas. And okay. That's what he I did. guess I misread so, it. So, in fact, uh, his last big public concert in London was him playing uh, Mike Concerto in the Festival Hall. He also played the Aranworth. It was an amazing night. It was incredible. Uh, but since then, he still carries on, you know, commissioning things. He commissioned a chamber piece for me for violin, two guitars, double bass and percussion. Uh, called huh. Flower Cities, which is which is a great. It's a great to have two guitars in a chamber. On yeah, side. yeah, it's a very cool thing. Get the projection going a bit better. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been done a few times, and uh, with John, John's done it with Craig Ogden, mostly, but also Gary Ryan's done it, and then other groups have done it. But yeah. it's um, no, it's a good. It's a great combination. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good uh, way forward in a mixed ensemble is to have two guitars rather than one. Because you've got this kind of uber guitar, which is, you know. And John commissioned that specific instrumentation. Yeah, well, we talked about it. He wanted clarinet, and I had this violinist I was working with at the time who was amazing. And I said, oh, you've got to have Max Bailey. He's just great. Yeah. So so we did that, yeah. And so he commissioned that. And then uh, a couple of years later, in fact, he was the one who introduced me to Matthew Wadsworth, a theorbo player. Uh, and it was John who commissioned my first, well, my only solo theorbo piece. Yeah. He said, I think you should write a piece for for matt i'm going to commission it you know here's the fee off you go uh but john never would never he'd probably be quite embarrassed i'm talking about it now on a podcast but he'd never make a song and dance about it you know he'd yeah. just think oh that would be good to do this and make this happen so yeah you know you know and, and shortly before um philip houghton died john brought him over to london mm. you know, for performances of his music and to yeah. meet all sorts of people over here so he's always got these sort of little little projects and meetings and things. Yeah, going on. yeah. Oh, that that's great to hear. Yeah, and he sounds like such a humble person, despite he is. Yeah, everything he's accomplished. Yeah, he is totally. And I mean, you know, nothing makes him more feel more uncomfortable than people just sycophants coming up to him and telling him how wonderful he is. Yeah, so, it's, you know, it's um, it's probably the last thing you want to hear when you yeah dealt with that for yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he just many wants years. to just you know play some music, have a chat, uh, talk about football or politics. You know. <laughs> I didn't know he was a who's his team, or, or can we not say? Oh, you can say. I mean, he's he's Arsenal, like me, although largely through his son. But um, yeah, we've been to the football together. Oh, <laughs> that'll be a story to tell for a while. I, I went to a football match with John Williams. I wish I had that. I don't follow football. Well, we, we 
for our American listeners, just in case if they don't know, football means soccer mm-hmm. here across the pond. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not that American football game that people claim is a sport. It's just uh, <laughs> not no my comment. cup of tea. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I guess this isn't a sports podcast. But uh, well. who knows? Maybe we'll do a we'll do an interview at, at Wembley Stadium right on the sideline. How about that? <laughs> Sounds good. So you've worked on quite a few concertos over the yeah. past couple of yeah. years. Well, in the last 10 years, I've written 10, basically. So one a year? Yeah, on average. Yeah. And some years, two, other years, none. But the four, seven of them involve the guitar. One of them is a piano concerto. One's a concerto for five, which I mentioned earlier. And there's a theobo concerto, yeah. too. So the latest one was a concerto for two guitars and orchestra called the Koblenz Concerto. And that was for solo duo uh, Lorenzo Michele and uh, Matteo Mella. Yeah. Oh, it was great working with those guys. I mean, they're... I could only imagine. Uh, unbelievably wonderful people and, of course, great, great artists. So that was a great project also because I had a big orchestra to work with. So, yeah. you know, big, big fat brass section. So, um, you know, two trumpets, uh, four horns, three trombones, bass trombone. Uh, you know, lots of percussion, lots of wind. So it was, uh, yeah, big project, a big sort of half-hour piece that's uninterrupted, just straight through. Oh, just one log movement. Yeah. Well, it's kind right. of in five sections. It's about the River Rhine. Oh, <laughs> okay. Things. So it's called the Koblenz Concerto because it was written for the Koblenz International yeah. Festival. And so it, uh, yeah, it follows various other episodes on the Rhine. So when do you compose a concerto, mm. besides the obvious difference in instrumentation and everything do you find your approach is totally different or do you try to keep things yeah, the I mean, same as you go by it's interesting i try and keep my approach different for every piece i write but there are certain things that i find in my orchestral writing that keep coming back like um uh, thumbprints certain kinds of texture certain combinations of instruments and i don't do it consciously necessarily i think it's just uh it's part of my idiolect or just perhaps part of my um shortcomings as an orchestrator that i keep relying on these these sorts of of things um the big difference with writing an orchestral piece is that you have to write it so you can play off the page uh you walk into the room with an orchestra and the clock is ticking there's a hundred people there and you know the money is going fast yeah and so if you write something which is gonna cause problems or take extra time or not be able to be done in the amount of available rehearsal time you have then you've got to um then you're in trouble so you you know in a way the funny thing is when you're writing for orchestra you have to be slightly conservative and write in a way that you know will work mm-hmm. whereas if you're writing for soloists or for chamber groups you can often take big risks try crazy things yeah. and go into a room with them and, and have a laugh when it doesn't work you know, and then go and think, okay, so if that doesn't work, I'll try something else. Whereas with the concertos, you know, the, certainly on the orchestral side, you've got to just turn up with it all ready and all done. And you're paying union dues and everything. You well, got. It's, it's, it's just that <laughs> yeah. thing. And it has to, you know, it has to lie under the fingers, has to be kind of... Uh, so the risk-taking doesn't doesn't really take place there. Um, you just sort of play with, with colours and you have, you know, other ways of, of working within those restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. For US listeners, I'm sure... Some of them have heard um, this new, uh, well, not as new now as we speak. <laughs> I guess it's <laughs> two years old or a uh, year and a half. 2017, yeah. so About two years old. Yeah. But really neat co-commission. Mm. Or what, 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 what's the word for that? Well, it was like um, uh, um, 
Oh, they did have a special word for it. <laughs> but um, it was a commission between 11 schools? 13 in the 13? end. 13, yeah. wow. It was, it was the brainchild of um, Andrew own at um, Columbus, Georgia. Uh, and Jamie Nix, who was the wind uh, orchestra director. And they just had this idea that they would commission a piece for me through the sort of American Wind Band Association going across all the different universities. Of course, that was all working fine until the American Wind Band Association realized I wasn't American. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, they only do this project for American composers. So uh, Andy and, and uh, Jamie basically organized the thing themselves. They just got in touch with their mates and said, you know, who's up for this? Yeah. So they formed this consortium. Consortium. Of, consortium, yeah. Of, of 30, they just, you know, who wants to do it, who doesn't want to do it. And um, 13 sort of agreed. And so they all chip in a small part of the commission fee. And they all do performances with their own guitarists and their own ensemble. And in some places, the guitar teacher played the solo part. In other places, they got uh, sort of more of the advanced students to do it. And you played it, didn't you? I did. Yeah. It was a, <laughs> I, I did bring it up because of that, but it's just such a neat piece. Because you know, colors. So each movement is a is a different color. Um, I'm actually colorblind, but don't don't tell anyone. Um, <laughs> so the the first movement is called Albuquerque Turquoise, uh, and this is largely because I went to the Albuquerque Museum, sorry, the Albuquerque Turquoise Museum, which is the most amazing place. Uh, it's an incredible collection of all these different different things I thought wouldn't it be great to write a piece called Albuquerque Turquoise so that was the inspiration from the first one and the last movement is is Red Rocks after yeah. the Red Rocks in, in Colorado and King uh, Crimson yeah King Crimson well, again right? yeah I'm and, sure they played there a couple um, times or? I don't know actually they must have done I guess I probably did know at the time I wrote the piece but and so it uses little fragments of stuff from their album Red um, you know and so on and so there's these uh, yeah, different ideas. So there's a kind of blue one, which is, is much more kind of blues and Miles Davis-ish. Uh, there's one called Green Movement, which is a kind of fiendish skirt. So, um, uh, But it was an op- opportunity to write for a combination which no one's written for before, which is guitar and large wind ensemble. Yeah, was that the first yeah, official so there's, piece? There's electric guitar um, yeah. piece for uh, electric guitar and wind ensemble, but it's the first one. So um, so with a couple of my concertos, that one, and then the Theobo concerto, that's the first concerto ever written for the theobo yeah <laughs> so so the, i mean the theobo had to be amplified of course yeah, yeah. how because we i was about to say for colors mm. the instrumentation actually works really well i find because of course aside from the percussion mm. the other instruments aren't so much of a percussive instrument a wind mm. instrument is more of kind of a sustain and the guitar it is a percussive instrument in mm. a sense so it really cuts through nicely yeah. Um, I mean, you need amplification, of course. Of course, but... you do, and 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 you need good amplification and and quite robust amplification. Yeah, yeah. You know, it makes all the difference. I did um, my Albaneth concerto was done very recently by uh, Pablo Viegas uh-huh. uh, with the Oregon Symphony in Portland, and they had the best amplification I've ever heard in my life. It was extraordinarily well done. It's a huge hall. You know, 2,700 people. Do you know the setup by chance? Or? No, of course not. They did explain at the time it went right over my head. But essentially, you know, uh, it was using stuff uh, on stage. He had a fallback speaker and then they had the house speakers in various different yeah. ways. But it sounded, and no one believed it was amplified. Yeah. No one believed it was, and they said this guitar sounded perfectly natural, but it was robust enough to cope with, you know, the big orchestral stuff. So when I write for a guitar in that ensemble, I imagine it's a piano. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's got the sort of the presence and the and the volume of the piano, yeah. and then kind of balance it to that. 
Um, I would never try and balance an acoustic guitar with an orchestra. It's just it's a nonsense. Yeah. You know, it's it's absolute madness. And also, you know, the guitar sounds so bad when, when the player has to play it triple forte all the time. Yeah, it just removes uh, yeah. liberties with yeah. color and dynamic changes. I mean, I find it a bizarre thing because amplification now is so sophisticated. Microphones are so good. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so often you can hear a setup, like the setup Matt got on his um, Theorba was, was extraordinary. Um, you know, really beautiful. It's just a time of getting getting the right amp, the right mics, the right yeah. preamp, and getting the sound. And in the end, in the recording of that concerto, we actually used the sound that was coming out of his speaker, not out of his theorbo. Really? Huh. And it sounded more natural than the theorbo sound, paradoxically. <laughs> um, That's funny. And so, you know, this is, this is the thing for me, is that amplification is the obvious way forward. You know, for a long time, people were saying, oh, the guitar's too quiet, let's build out a guitar's. But actually, why would you spend $10,000 on a louder guitar when you could spend $5,000 on an amplification system which makes your less loud guitar sound good and yeah. louder? You know, it's a kind of... And when it's done well. I know. Well, that's it. It's got to be done well, of course. I think the trick is you need a set of ears you really trust out of the audience. Exactly. You that's do. The, you that's the only kind of hold back, I think. Absolutely right. You absolutely do need that. Unfortunately, yeah. when you're gigging. No, <laughs> it's You true. don't have that. It's but true. uh well, who knows? Maybe it'll be really interesting to see what guitar amplification is going to be like 20 yeah, years from now. I think so. You know, and the microphones are getting more sophisticated, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but mainly, I think there are just more and more people who know how to use the gear. I mean, that's the one, it's one thing to have the gear, but another thing to actually be a, a virtuoso at making it do what you want it to. Yeah. No, but I think, you know, the um, the guitar concerto as a thing is, is becoming... Uh, you know, a more accepted thing. For a long time, the guitar was the kind of oddity and everyone would have to play around your earth. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, gradually um, more different concertos are being played and there are certain festivals which encourage, you know, an, a large number of different concerti. Yeah. There's, of course, the Giant Faletta competition in, in Buffalo. Um, and then there's festivals like Artyom Derviod's festival in Moscow where they have a night with orchestra every year and five different concertos. Yeah. Every, every festival there are more different concertos. Because it used to be we'd only hear around words. But, you know, I think the level in guitar has just shot up in the last 15 to 20 years. And that's probably another part of it. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And now what you find happening is that guitarists will be winning competitions within music colleges and universities that are for all instruments. Yeah. You know, and the guitarists, they're no longer these kind of poorer cousins, mm-hmm. you know, and they're no longer the kind of weak link in a contemporary music ensemble yeah. or, or whatever. So it's, uh, it's very exciting times, I think. Thank you, Steve, for being on the show. Please join me next week for a conversation with Mark Eden of the Vita Guitar Quartet and Eden Stout Duo. I usually release these episodes every other week, but Mark was talking about the Winchester Festival, which he organizes, which takes place from October 4th to the 7th. And I really wanted to release this episode beforehand. So for next episode, it'll be next Sunday. I've got a treat for us today uh, for our concluding listening samples. I really was having trouble uh, bringing it down to just one piece. So I decided I was going to play two samples. We're going to first hear the finale movement of Steve's Theorobo Concerto with Matthew Wadsworth on the Theorobo in the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. And then following that, we'll have the one and only John Williams performing the last movement of Steve's Guitar Concerto with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tombe's Classical Guitar Podcast.
Thank you. 